Please turn in your copy of the scriptures to the book of 2 Thessalonians, chapter 3. Today, we are going to cover this chapter in its entirety with the help of three preachers. Initially, it was going to be our three elders, uh, but due to some events that arose during the week, we brought Gideon in off the bench, who is going to sub in for Steve, who is going to take a rest this week. Let me pray for us, and then we'll dive into the Word. Father God, we ask that today, as we come before your Word, you give us a clear understanding of what it means, and a clear commitment to do it. Lord, I pray that you would help us, by your Holy Spirit, to set our nose to the grindstone, to be about the task of our Father's business. Lord, I pray that today, as we come before you, that you would help us to see the great value in serving you with great effort, that we would not walk through our Christian life haphazardly or allowing life to just happen to us. Help us, Lord, to be pursuing constantly a life of rigorous pursuit of Jesus Christ. In his name we pray. Amen. Tomorrow is Labor Day, and Labor Day is, according to the U.S. Department of Labor, the holiday that is dedicated to the social and economic achievements of American workers. It constitutes a yearly national tribute to the contributions workers have made to strength, prosperity, and well-being of our country. Ironically, in this holiday where we celebrate hard work, we celebrate it by not working at all. This is how we celebrate labor. Actually, as a child, I remember thinking that Labor Day was kind of like a special almost birthday for moms where they remembered the labor that they had. Um, I figured out eventually that was not right. I'm curious, are there any ladies here that have gone into labor or been in labor on Labor Day? Oh my goodness, are you serious? That's, that's incredible. Logan, do you realize how incredible that is? That's incredible. Ten years old, by the way. Awesome. Ironically, we look at this day where we celebrate labor, and the best thing we can think to do is not to labor at all. 2020 has been a year that has been filled with a lot of opportunity for change, uh, for our regular daily routine to be disrupted and to be refilled with different things. Many of us, although not all of us, have had more time in our schedules because we no longer commute and we do things from a computer. Many have had time in their schedules because they have been furloughed or are temporarily uh, working only a few days a week. And there is a lot of time that have, people have had on their hands. But I fear that many of us have squandered the blessing of the extra hours that we have in our day. In our chapter this morning, the Lord is teaching us that laziness is a spiritual problem. This is not a lesson that is new to the New Testament. Proverbs chapter 26 verse 13 says, The sluggard says there is a lion in the road. There is a lion in the streets. The sluggard is so opposed to working that he is latching on to any possible excuse not to go into work today. I can't go to work. What if a lion eats me? The point is, this is an unlikely reality. In a similar manner, the people of the church in Thessalonica were latching onto a theological misunderstanding, and they were using that as an excuse to avoid working. And what is worse, they were relying on the kindness of those in the church who were willing to work hard in order to support them. What was their mistaken theology? 
Well, they rightly believed that Jesus was going to return. Amen, right? Praise the Lord. We observe the Lord's death, it says, we, as we just read in 1 Corinthians 11, until he comes. Of course, we know he will be coming back. But they took that word soon, and they believed that implied it would be within their own lifetimes, perhaps within the year. So they thought this way. Oh, Christ is going to return soon. Why bother plant the fields? We're never going to harvest them. Well, if, if Jesus is coming back, it could be today. Why, why bother go to my job? Because I might never receive that paycheck. This thinking caused many to become both spiritually and outwardly lazy. Paul has spent the majority of this book clearing up their misunderstanding about the second coming. But now in chapter 3, he is going to set his attention on their need to labor. He says in verse 1, Finally, brothers, pray for us that the word of the Lord may speed ahead and be honored, as happened among you, and that we may be delivered from wicked and evil men, for not all have faith. But the Lord is faithful. He will establish you and guard you against the evil one. And we have confidence in the Lord about you, that you are doing and will do the things that we command. May the Lord direct your hearts to the love of God and to the steadfastness of Christ. And you're probably aware, but Paul's letters follow a very predictable pattern. He begins by making a theological argument. And then, at some point in the book, he transitions to pressing the implications of that theology into the lives of the people with practical instruction. That is why the first part of Paul's letters are void of commands, and the latter parts are absolutely overflowing with them. Chapter 3 begins with the word, finally, which indicates that he has moved now into the hand, hands-on portion of the book. This is where we find all of the commands. Chapter 3 begins with this word, finally, telling us, here's what we must now do. As we see that this chapter is going to revolve around the theme of work, it could easily... Uh, we could, uh, it could easily be, uh, be ignored, this beginning part. We look at the next section that Gideon's going to cover, and we see, well, clearly this is all about work. And we look at the part that Mike is going to preach, and he says that's about work, but this beginning part would be very easy in our natural minds to just read over quickly and ignore. But you need to understand that there are many important implications in these verses that need to be in place for you to do what you are called to do in the following part of the chapter. Paul is a better worker than any of the Thessalonians. He is a harder worker than any of those that he is writing to. He is more capable of pointing to his labor and saying, look at this as your example than anyone else in the world. He is able to say, I am better than you, but he does not do that. Rather, notice his first thing that he tells them to do is, Pray for us. Specifically, he asks that their prayer would be that the word of the Lord would speed ahead and would be honored. How is the gospel carried from place to place? How is it that the gospel speeds around the world? Is it not by missionaries and evangelists and preachers like Paul? Is it not by the spread of faithful proclamation of believers who are excited to share with the world what Christ has done for them? The gospel is not transmitted like a virus. It never goes out by accident. The kingdom of God is built by consistent and faithful labor 
by service of men and women who lift high the cross, regardless of cost or challenge. So when Paul asks for prayer, that the word of God would speed ahead, he is asking for prayer that people would rise up and carry that message faithfully and without spiritual laziness. He is praying that he and others like him would be committed to the hard work of proclamation. Why do we pray that people will come to faith in Jesus Christ? Why do we pray for people to get saved? Paul prays that the word would be honored, that people would receive it, just like the Thessalonians did. This is an admission that our labors are only a small part of the equation. This is an acknowledgement that if God does not do the work in their hearts, none of those people to whom Paul is preaching will be saved. In short, we pray that God would do the work, because if he doesn't, our efforts are void. Christ must save, and Christ alone. So I want you to see what Paul is starting with here, he says, pray for my labor, but even as you do, pray that God will be working in my labor. If there is one verse that I have quoted more than any other to our church in the five years of our existence, it has been Psalm 127, verse 1. Unless the Lord builds the house, those who build it labor in vain. It does not mean that we cease from laboring. We are called to labor. We are called to work hard, but it means that God must be working in and through our efforts. Paul also asked for prayer that he would be protected from evil men. When Paul wrote this letter, he was in Corinth. And we see what was taking place in his life in the book of Acts chapter 18. We know that he was arrested and he was taken before a man named Gallio. Gallio was the brother of Seneca. If you know Roman history, you know that Seneca is one of the most important people in all of Roman history because he was the chief advisor to Nero. If you know anything about Nero, you will know that he really didn't care too much about ruling the kingdom. He believed that he was a great actor, he spent a lot of his time racing chariots, and he did very little in terms of actually controlling the kingdom. The one who was pulling all the strings was Seneca. And Seneca's brother is the one that Paul is standing before in Thessalonica, or I'm sorry, in Corinth, where he is writing this letter. And so he writes to, to them and says, please pray for me that you would, the Lord would protect us from evil men. He is not naming him by name, but he is referencing this situation with Gallio or one like it. This guy, Gallio, was no low-level stooge. He was one of the most influential rulers in the world. And you find this account written in Acts chapter 18, verses 12 through 17, which says, But when Gallio was proconsul of Achaia, the Jews made a united attack on Paul and brought him before the tribunal, saying, This man is persuading people to worship God contrary to the law. But when Paul was about to open his mouth, Gallio said to the Jews, If it were a matter of wrongdoing or vicious crime, O Jews, I would have reason to accept your complaint. But well, since this is a matter of questions about words and names in your own law, see to it yourselves. I refuse to be the judge of these things. And he drove them out from the tribunal. And they all seized Sosthenes, the ruler of the synagogue, and beat him in front of the tribunal. But Gallio paid no attention to any of this. Sosthenes was the enemy of Christ that was dragging Paul before the tribunal. In American law, we have a system of precedent. 
This means that if one judge rules in a particular way, then other judges in the future will look back to that ruling and take it into account as the historic and therefore accurate way to understand the law. Judges are very hesitant to go back and overturn older rulings. This is why judges are very influential and very important in our country. But this concept to us of precedent is not new. When Gallio announced that the preaching of the gospel was not a question that the Roman government needed to meddle in, that set a very important precedent of freedom of religion that temporary, temporarily existed for Paul and those preaching the gospel. From that point forward, there was a period of freedom from any kind of political persecution as the gospel was given a green light to be preached without any hindrance from the Jewish opponents. This was a significant moment, and I hope that you see the connection. Paul asked the Thessalonians, while he's in Corinth, pray for us that the Lord would protect us from evil men and that the gospel would speed forward. And he not only allowed Paul to speed forward the gospel message, but he allowed him to do that without any kind of interference from evil men at this point in time. The Lord answered favorably the prayer of the Thessalonians. Verse 3 says, But the Lord is faithful. He will establish you and guard you against the evil one. And we have confidence in the Lord about you, that you are doing and will do the things that we command. Paul is confident here of two things. First, he is confident in the faithfulness of the Lord, that he will establish and guard. And then we see this very odd phrase in verse 4, that Paul is, quote, confident in the Lord about you. I doubt that you have ever used that phraseology about anyone in your entire life. I am confident in the Lord about you. What does that even mean? Literally, it means that Paul is convinced, fully convinced, that the people of Thessalonica will hear his commands, all that he is about to tell them that we are going to hear from Gideon and from Mike, and that they will obey. And he is not saying, I am confident because you guys are just such incredible people with amazing willpower. He is not saying, I am confident because you are just so skilled in your ability to parse out all the Greek words I am writing to you and can apply them with great brilliance. He doesn't speak about them at all. He says, I am confident in the Lord about you. I am confident that God is going to do this work. This is the Thessalonian equivalent to Philippians chapter 1, verse 6, which says, being confident of this very thing, that he who began a good work in you will carry it to completion at the day of Christ Jesus. He is saying, I am confident that God is going to do what he started in you. I am confident that if you are a believer, all you who truly know him, you will hear these words and you will apply them. So before Paul ever gets to the commands, before he ever says, you must work hard, he speaks a prayer of blessing over the people. We read this in verses five, uh, verse 5. He says, May the Lord direct your hearts to the love of God and to the steadfastness of Christ. This is what we call a benediction. We see several of them throughout the New Testament. There's actually two in the book of Thessalonians. A benediction is nothing but a spoken blessing over the people. And he says, May the Lord direct your hearts. May he guide them. May he lead them to the love of God and to the steadfastness of Christ. Let me ask you, what is your motivation to work hard in the things that you do? At your job, is your motivation your paycheck? 
If so, then you're going to slack off when you are underpaid. Is your motivation approval? If so, then you're going to do poor work whenever you're not being observed. Is it to see what you can accomplish and build with your hands? Well, if so, then you are going to be disillusioned when you realize that your labor is all temporary and fading and everything that you are building is being dismantled by somebody else. Spiritually speaking, what is your motivation? What pushes you to your knees in prayer? What draws you to the open pages of your Bible? What inclines you to serve the body of Christ? What motivates you to share the gospel? Some of us this year have taken the opportunity of COVID and instead of growing in our zeal, we have become spiritually lazy people. Some of you have used COVID as an excuse to be slack in your spiritual disciplines. But Jesus is calling us right now to honor him with spiritual zeal that flows out into every aspect of our lives. But he gives us the only motivation that truly works. He tells us why we are to do these things. That the Lord would direct our hearts to two things, the love of God and the steadfastness of Christ. If you know the love of God for you, there is nothing that can stop you from serving him in whatever task is at hand. And if you remember the gospel, that Christ steadfastly served you with no laziness, with no lack of zeal, that he was steadfast and unmovable in his pursuit of you, if you remember that gospel, that Jesus went to the cross for you, and that he was raised for you, and that he lives presently for you, then you will imitate him with a steadfast life that shakes off all the rust of laziness, both spiritual and physical. We sang in our first song this morning, and in his strength we'll labor. His promise is our hope. Thus far his love has led us. His love will lead us home. Amen. At this time, Gideon will come forward and continue on in our text. Thank you, Pastor Caleb. Um, now let's move on to verses 6 to 12 and dive right in. Now we command you, brothers, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you keep away from any brother who is walking in idleness and not in accord with the tradition that you received from us. For you know yourselves how you ought to imitate us, because we were not idle when we were with you, nor did we eat anyone's bread without paying for it. But with toil and labor, we worked night and day that we might not be a burden to any of you. It wasn't because we don't have the right, but to give you and ourselves an example to imitate. For even when we were with you, we would give you this command. If anyone is not willing to work, let him not eat. For we hear that some among you walk in idleness, not busy at work, but busy bodies. Now such persons we command and encourage in the Lord Jesus Christ to do their work quietly 
and to earn their own living. This is God's word. For our time in this morning, in these verses, I want to look at it in three parts. One, I want us to look at the commands. Two, I want us to look at his authority. And three, I want us to look at the example. So the authority, no, the command, the authority, and the example. One, we see that Paul in the Holy Spirit gives us three commands in these seven verses. Three commands in these seven verses. The first one, if you look at your Bibles, is in verse six, is in verse six. Now we command you, brothers, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you keep away from any brother who is walking in idleness and not in accord with the tradition that you received from us. The word here for idleness is not what we might think. The word, the word here for idleness is not laziness in this, in this use. In the original, it literally translates as breaking out of rank, breaking out of rank, like in a line or in the military. And so other translations have the word disorderly, disorderly. Apparently, there were some among the brothers who were breaking out of rank with the commands and the traditions that the apostles gave. Their faith and their life was not lining up. Their live and their believe was not consistent. Paul tells us in the Holy Spirit, we are told to keep away from any brother who, whose life is inconsistent with the gospel message and calling. But what kind of life exactly were these people living? We know that they were inconsistent. We know that they were disorderly. What kind of life were they living? Look with me at verse 10 and we get a much better idea. Verse 10, for even when we were with you, we would give you this command. If anyone is not willing to work, let him not eat. So that gives us a better idea of the kind of lives that they were living. If you're not willing to work, you're not going to eat. They were living sluggish, lazy lives. That were not, they were not working for their living and for their food. And this probably overflowed into their walk with Jesus as well. And so Paul gives us this command, very simply, if you don't work, you don't eat. If you don't work, you don't eat. God tells us through these words that he is very serious about the Christian's work ethic. Very serious about the Christian's work ethic. We will do very well to raise our standard of work ethic as well to our Father's standard. It is not simply okay of these people and among us because we do no harm to others, but he calls us all to be busy and hard at work in working and providing for our families and ourselves wherever he has placed us. Command one, we see Paul tells us keep away from the inconsistent, lazy brother. Two, we see he tells us if you don't work, you don't eat. And in our third command, we see in verse 12, look with me, now such persons, these lazy people, we command and encourage in the Lord Jesus to do their work quietly and earn their own living. <clears throat> this is pretty much the positive of the negative command we receive in verse 10. Right? Verse 10 says, you don't work, you don't eat. <clears throat> this command says, work and earn your own living and bread. <clears throat> Excuse me. Work and earn your own living and bread. 
We as Christians should be the last people considered lazy and therefore heaping burdens on others. The very essence of our master's business was that he took burdens on himself because he worked harder than all of the rest. He took on our poverty so that we could become rich. We are called to follow him in the same manner of living. Let us honestly examine our hearts to see where we are walking in idleness and laziness. And so we see Paul's three commands in this text. Next, we'll see the authority behind these commands. Whose authority is Paul appealing to? This is not a, a long point but a, to labor, but a necessary one. Paul says twice in this passage that he commands in the Lord Jesus Christ. Verse 6, we command you, brothers, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you keep away from any brother who is walking in idleness. And again in verse 12, if you look with me, now such persons we command in the Lord Jesus Christ to do their work quietly and to earn their own living. Paul's authority is, <clears throat> excuse me, is ultimately not vested in himself, but in the Lord Jesus Christ. Same goes for us as well. Our master and our king and our husband to whom we must submit is indeed the Lord Jesus Christ. In our lives, what he says goes. We are fully subject to him. We are at his disposal. We are told elsewhere that we are no longer our own, but we have been bought at a price. <clears throat> So we see the commands we are given, we see the authority, the Lord Jesus Christ, behind these commands, and finally, we get to the example that is set before us. I think the first example, believe it or not, is the brother that we are told to stay away from. The brother who won't work for his food, who, who won't work because he is utterly lazy, that is the one whom we are told to stay away from, and that, I believe, is our first example. Right? The reason I believe he's an example is not because um, he is, is an example to us is because we don't only learn from the people that do well, we learn a lot from the people that mess up because we don't want to walk in their footsteps. I've personally learned so much about how to walk with Jesus and fear the Lord from godly men I've looked up to like Titus Choi and Kevin Park and Ed Moore and Mike Chang and Kelvin Candelario, but I've also learned so much of what not to do from other people who have set poor examples for me spiritually. I'm sure many of you can agree on various cylinders of life. And so the first example we see is the brother walking in idleness. Don't be the guy walking in idleness. The second example we see clearly is Paul and his companions. That one is more obvious when they were in Thessalonica. Please look with me in verses 7, 8, and 9. Paul writes in the Holy Spirit, For you yourselves know how you ought to imitate us, because we were not idle when we were with you. Nor did we eat anyone's bread without paying for it, but with toil and labor we worked night and day, that we might not be a burden to any of you. It was not because we don't have the right to take your food, but to give you and ourselves an example to imitate. 
to, to details of Paul's example that we have to know here. Two details we have to note. One is that Paul and his friends did not eat anyone's bread without paying for it. If they gave him a piece of bread, a piece of Jewish, Jewish bread at the time, he did not take it unless he paid for it. Not a single meal he accepted so that, so that he could set the bar high as an example. Second, Paul, the second detail to notice is that Paul and his friends worked their tail off. With toil and labor, they worked night and day. He worked his tail off building tents so that he would not be a burden to anybody. Paul says that in verse 9, he had the right. He had the right to take their food and to take their, to take their possessions to be provided for as an apostle, but he didn't exercise it so that the saints would have an example to live by. Oh, the power, oh, the power of example, brothers and sisters. And a, a humble word to our beloved pastors and our church leaders and, and those of us who are serving in, in some sort of leadership role, that we have to strive to be intentional in setting an example among the brethren, as Paul and his companions did. His commands were not isolated words to the saints, but Paul's life was packed with dense examples of what it looks like to live out what exactly he's commanding. He's not just saying, do it, and I'll sit up here and do nothing. He's saying, I showed you how it's done. Oh, the power of an example, brothers and sisters. We see the example in the lazy brother. We see it in Paul and his companions that we are to follow. And we see it ultimately in our Lord Jesus Christ. You didn't think we could talk about example and not mention the king in all of his beauty, did you? Jesus was an exceptionally hard worker. He certainly left us an example to live by and he himself is our help. John 9, he says, we must do the works of him who sent me while it is day. Night is coming when no one can work. Jesus was always pressing forward, busy in his father's work. John 4, the disciples were urging him to eat something because he hasn't eaten. And he responds, my food is to do the will of him who sent me and to finish his work. To do the will of him who sent me and to finish it, to accomplish the work he was given. Jesus was not lazy. Jesus was a worker. His eyes were set on the task and to the execution of the task. Remember Jesus at the garden in Luke 22, before the cross. He's not, he's not sitting on the couch or sitting in the, the, the table at the Lord's Supper. He is toiling in prayer. And being in agony, he prayed more earnestly. And his sweat became like great drops of blood falling to the ground. He toiled, he labored, he prayed more earnestly that the cup might pass from him, but that the Father's will might be done. He was not lazy in prayer. Oh, I love how the song goes by City of Light, how in that garden he persisted. I may never fully know, and my hope was sure when there my Savior prayed, Father, not my will, but yours be done. And ultimately, ultimately, remember Jesus Christ, your Savior, your Lord, at the cross, where he finished the work that he came into the world to accomplish. He said on the cross in John 19, it is finished. 
and he bowed his head and he gave up his spirit. It is finished. I did the work you told me to do, Father. I paid it all on the cross. And even now, Jesus is not done working. We, we, we might think he's done working at the cross, but he is not done. Hebrews 7.25, he always lives to make intercession. He is praying for you right now. Are you happy in Jesus? He is praying for you right now. Robert Murray McShane says that if I heard Christ praying for me in the next room, I would not fear a million enemies. But the distance doesn't matter. Christ is praying for me. We have such good examples. Don't be like the lazy brother. See Paul and his companions, but ultimately look at Jesus. Psalm 27, 4, he says that I may gaze upon the beauty of the Lord and inquire in your temple. We have Jesus as our ultimate example. Live for him. Thank you. Where's Rocky? I need some help. <laughs> Am I lazy? I tried to grow. It just. <laughs> Good morning, church. Good morning. Sadly, after hearing the wonderful proclamation of the gospel and the work of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, not only accomplishing the Father's will on earth, but uh, continuing living to intercede for us, we come back to reality, the sad reality of sin within the local body. And as I pick up where Gideon left off, please keep in mind everything that Caleb and Gideon have set up to this point as we approach the remaining verses in 2 Thessalonians chapter 3. We're going to go through it verse by verse, but I'm not going to read it beforehand, so if you can keep it open, either in your Bible or in your phone and follow along as we continue to see what the Apostle Paul admonished the church in Thessalonica to do in light of everything that has come before. In verses 13 to 18, the Apostle Paul gives final instructions to the Thessalonian church on how to, one, continue to care for the needs of the church even though some have refused to work and remain disobediently idle. Number two, how to deal with the sinning brothers and sisters who have disobeyed Paul's mandate to provide for themselves by working. Paul then concludes the letter by praying or pronouncing the blessing on the entire Thessalonian congregation, hoping for better things concerning those who have been to this point disobediently idle. So starting in verse 13, the apostle charges the obedient members of the church to not grow weary in doing good. Now, why would he tell them that? Well, doing good in this context does not connote a general call to good works. Rather, it is aimed to encourage the brethren to not give up in serving and caring for the truly needy among them. In other words, Paul says, I know you're frustrated with the lazy and idle among you. I know you've been picking up their slack and taking care of them and you're tired of it. But brothers and sisters, Paul says there are still people in your congregation who are legitimately needy and unable to work. They still need you. So don't throw in the towel. 
continue to serve Christ by serving them. Now, perhaps as it was already mentioned, these lazy people were, were that, that sin stemming from a misunderstanding of the second return of Christ, of the return of Christ. Perhaps they thought it was going to happen in their lifetime, which it may happen, it may happen now. But they were so sure it was going to happen because they were misreading the times that they said, why are we going to bother working? Why, why should I toil in the field if he's coming back? But they were being an unnecessary burden on those who were continuing to work. So maybe that's where their sin stemmed from. Maybe it was just a lazy heart. But either way, whatever the reason, they weren't to be enabled to mooch off those who, who other members who continue to provide. As Gideon already read, Paul writes in 2 Thessalonians 3.10, Let him who does not work not eat. But to those who were willing but unable to work, these should be taken care of by the able members of the church. That's why Paul wrote, as for you, brothers, do not go weary in doing good. Next in verse 14, Paul turns his attention back to those who still aren't listening to him and are still refusing to work. He tells the brethren, the obedient brethren, take note of that person. Mark them out by name. I am blessed by the, the, the men uh, whom Gideon uh, listed of who are encouragement to him. I am uh, relieved that he had mentioned those who aren't an encouragement to him. This might not be the time, but there is a time to speak by name in humility about those who are not laboring among us. And then Paul says again, have nothing to do with him. Mark them out, have nothing to do with them. Why? That he may be ashamed. Have nothing to do with him that he may be ashamed. Now, we need to take a moment to examine this having nothing to do with him command. Now this may refer to excommunication. There are some scholars that believe uh, this to be the case, the casting them out of the assembly. But I'm not so sure this fits the Matthew 18 pattern of church discipline, which does lead to excommunication. First of all, this admonition to avoid the idle man isn't made to the elders of the Thessalonian congregation, but to the average church members, to the rank-and-file brethren. Perhaps part of Paul's uh, thought behind this was to remove the bad influence and temptation to be drawn into idleness as well. As Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians 15.33, Bad company ruins good morals. But even more so, Paul's clarification in verse 15 here tells the Thessalonians to not regard him, the lazy, disobedient brother, as an enemy, but to warn him as a brother. Do not regard him as an enemy, but warn him as a brother. Now this puts things into a new light. Because according to Matthew 18, 17, when someone goes through the stages of church discipline and they do not repent, they are to be cast out of the church and to consider to be an unbeliever, a person who is not a Christian, who is unsaved. But here, in this text this morning, this person isn't to be regarded as an enemy or an unbeliever, but as still a brother in Christ. A wayward brother, but a brother nonetheless. The goal here isn't to separate the sheep from the goats, 
The desire result in 2 Thessalonians 3 is the production of shame in the sheep's heart. Shame leading to sorrow, sorrow leading to regret, and regret leading to repentance. Yes, brothers and sisters, Paul says to avoid the idle man or woman that he or she may be ashamed. Ashamed of their disobedient, ungodly behavior in the hope that he or she would repent and be restored to fellowship. Now, let it be known, all church discipline, whether Matthew 18 or the text this morning, is to be conducted with the same hope. The hope of repentance and restoration. For instance, when following the guidelines provided in Matthew 18, when a sinning brother is gone to first privately, the hope is that they would listen and repent. If not, then we are to go with two or three witnesses. And the hope is that they would listen and repent. And if not, we bring the whole church into it in the hope that they would listen and repent. Amen. The goal is always for them to listen and repent and to be restored to fellowship. But if they do not listen and repent, they are to be cast out, counted as an unbeliever, as a hellbound reprobate. A person who, according to 1 John 2.19, was never a Christian to begin with. No matter what their profession of faith was, no matter how many times they cried when they were singing the hymns and choruses, no matter how many times they attended the Bible study, but here, brothers and sisters, specifically in 2 Thessalonians 3, this person is to be temporarily cast out and avoided and still to be considered a brother, a blood-bought, heaven-bound Christian. Now, as we mentioned twice before, the sin may have stemmed by an erroneous view of eschatology, but whatever the cause, whatever the case, our warning to them must be a brotherly warning in full hope that the warning would produce shame which in turn would result in repentance. Now I'm trying to drive this home because you're looking at a man who in his heart thought he could read other people's hearts. So quick to kick people out of the kingdom when they're sinning. So quick to have little grace with them and ignoring the multitude of grace that I had received from the Lord Jesus Christ and through the church. So please hear what I'm saying and what Paul is saying here. Warn him as a brother. Now, before moving on to Paul's benediction, the second one in this chapter, I must say something about a word or concept that most 21st century Americans consider absolutely unacceptable, and that is the idea of shame. We are told to be proud of ourselves regardless of our actions. Pride. Be proud. We are told to avoid shaming others. We have fat shaming, age shaming, career shaming, height shaming. <laughs> you name it, we shame it. But seriously, please don't misunderstand me. No one should ever be put down, mocked, or made fun of for any reason. A Christian should never make fun of or belittle anyone for any reason. We can and should disagree with their ideas, their unbiblical and sinful ideas, and we could and should speak with them about that, challenge them on it, 
even debate with them, but never make fun or belittle. Amen? The shame mentioned here by Paul is not that. It is not putting a person down in order to make yourself look better. Rather, it's humbly pointing out the sin in a brother or sister's life with the purpose of exposing the darkness and bringing it to light, thereby producing godly sorrow, godly shame, which leads to repentance. And this shame is necessary. It's used by God to lead them to obedience. Now, as Christians, our sin should cause us to experience shame. It should. It should cause us to, 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 to hang our head low in fear. However, in the life of an unbeliever who is void of the Holy Spirit, this person would not experience true godly shame because he or she is acting in accordance with their unregenerate nature, which according to second, I'm sorry, Ephesians 2, 3, uh, their nature is of children of wrath. But on the other hand, when a spirit-filled believer sins, the Holy Spirit within them is grieved. And this does produce shame. And when our church family underscores this by allowing our sin to separate us from them, we are convicted and driven to repentance. So, if you're in the position where you are avoiding a brother because of their sin, first, do not be self-righteous. Second, do not look down on them. Third, do not condemn them. Don't be so quick to kick someone out of the kingdom of heaven and assign them to the pits of hell. On the contrary, do so in fearful obedience with a single purpose in mind and in heart that your actions would produce godly shame in them and result in their repentance and restoration. And this leads us finally to Paul's benediction, which is in light of his hopes of the lazy Christian's restoration. That's what Caleb started out with. In hopes of the disobedient Christian, the disobedient Christians return to obedience. Therefore, he blesses them and prays that the Lord of peace, the Prince of peace, would grant the Thessalonian church all of the Thessalonian church, peace. Peace during persecution. Peace awaiting the second coming of Jesus. Peace undergoing sanctification. And finally, peace between all brothers and sisters in the local church. The Apostle Paul, trusting in the Lord and thinking better things of the Thessalonians, asks the Lord to bless them with peace. So in conclusion, brothers and sisters, continue serving each other even if some have taken advantage of you in this church in the past. Continue serving Christ by serving his sheep. Secondly, brothers and sisters, mark out those among you who are disobedient and regarding working and providing for their family. But humbly do this. Go to them, plead with them, warn them from the words of the apostle in this very letter. And if they do not listen, avoid them in the hope that the Holy Spirit residing within them will convict them, bringing shame and leading them to repentance. And remember, warn them as a brother. And finally, number three, like the apostle Paul, pray for them, anticipating their obedience and repentance and be ready to welcome them back. Ladies and gentlemen, we shouldn't be surprised when a brother or sister repents. 
we shouldn't be surprised. I confess how many times in my heart, I thought, he, he or she's never gonna change. Of course they are. How dare I? The Lord can change my heart, give me a heart of flesh and save me. He can convict and grant a sinner repentance from a particular sin, especially this sin, amen. So at this point, please bow your heads with me as I pray this very thing for Redeeming Grace Fellowship, for peace. Dear Heavenly Father, I thank you first and foremost for the peace that we have with you through the life and work of your Son, Jesus Christ. We thank you for, that, for the fact that that peace has been made sure and secure, as Gideon mentioned that the Lord Jesus continues to intercede for us and he will do so forever. We thank you for his intercession. Now I pray, dear Lord, for the peace of the members and the Christians in Redeeming Grace Fellowship. I pray, dear Lord, that we would have peace with one another. I pray that you would soften our hearts toward one another, that you allow us to show grace to one another, that you would give us the ability to encourage one another, to stir up one another, while still today, I ask for the ability to humbly admonish one another to humbly mention the sin in each other's lives all the time being aware of the plank in our own eyes i pray dear lord that you would maintain a spirit of unity here based on truth and obedience to your word but most importantly by the holy spirit who indwells every single believer and i thank you for the holy spirit for his encouragement, for his teaching, for his sealing, and for his admonition. I pray, dear God, that you would have your way with this congregation, and above all, that through grace in your Son, Jesus Christ, we would live in a manner pleasing to you. And I lift these things all up to you in his holy name. Amen.